Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The FT. Hello and welcome to World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week, demonstrations in Moscow against Vladimir Putin after last weekend's elections. The real proximate reason for the protest is not, you know, economic or political malaise. It's the rigged election. The growing international pressure on Iran. Iran has significant retaliatory capability. That is the problem. It has the ability to launch ballistic missiles at Israeli cities. And first, the results of the Egyptian elections, where Islamist parties have won big. With me in the studio is Rula Khalaf, our Middle East editor. Rula, how much of a surprise was it that collectively the Muslim Brotherhood and the uh, Salafist party, Nur, seem to have got almost two-thirds of the vote? I think the results, the outcome for the Brotherhood was not surprising, around 36-37%. And that's what they had predicted and what everyone else had expected. The big surprise is the fact that a newly formed party, the Salafi party, Party Noor, which essentially came out of nowhere, was able to get about twen- over 20% of the vote. And I think that has alarmed a lot of people because if you think, well, what if they do have some experience? What if they had more time to campaign? You know, the, the campaigning period was mm. quite turbulent. And I think the biggest worry is that they could push the Brotherhood towards a more uncomfortable, more awkward position where they would put emphasis more on Islamization of society, which I think the Brotherhood does not want to get into at this point. Now, since the election, and perhaps because they have been surprised by their own showing, Noor party officials have been trying to tone down their rhetoric, play down what what their intentions are. They're trying to talk about, you know, forming coalitions with others. And the Brotherhood has been trying to distance itself from them and to say, we'd rather uh, we'd rather be in a coalition with the liberals than with Islamists who are more radical than us. I guess this, I mean, it's obviously a vital period, the post-revolutionary period, the economy's in a mess, but also they have to get down to writing a constitution. So give us a sense of the kind of debates that will be being had about this constitution now, particularly in the light of the election result. Well, I think it's difficult to see a situation where a constitution is going to be written with the Islamists dominating because I think a constitution is going to require a certain consensus. So I think the army will still be quite active during the period of the drafting of the constitution. There's going to be a debate as to how the drafting committee is to be formed, whether uh, it will be it, it will be a decision purely from parliament or, uh, or the extent to which the army will be involved in that. But I think that there are various sort of points of crisis that we need to be watching for. One is the debate over the, the constitution. Um, two is the role of the army and the extent to which the Brotherhood and um, and other parties will be pushing the army to hand over powers more quickly and to give up this idea of having supra-constitutional powers that the army had put forward, the ruling military council had put forward before. There's also, you know, just the issue of the polarization of, of, of society. And I think this we're starting to see this in Tunisia now. And I think we'll have a lot of uh, crisis points where, be it issues of, you know, dress or um, culture, 
Hmm. Uh, what about the role we'll, of minorities? We'll a... I mean, the Christian minority has been there for centuries. They're 10% of the population. Do they feel under threat, do you think? I think since the ouster of the Mubarak regime, the Christians have felt under threat. And as you know, there have been uh, some violent incidents. They've been worried about the the, Salafi, the rise of the Salafis in particular, but also the fact that the state has not protected them. So I think that the Brotherhood will, will probably end up being the sort of middle ground that tries to, on the one hand, tame the Salafis and bring some, you know, other people in. But I think that this is, this is a very uncomfortable time for, for the Christian minority. Finally, what about the international context? Obviously, Egypt is you know, a crucial country in, in the Middle East. How do the elections affect the kind of overall tumult and the balance of power in the Middle East? Do they? Eventually, they will, of course. Egypt is a very important country in terms of foreign policy, and it was ruled by a regime that essentially was to people's minds, far too close to, to the US, far too accommodating towards Israel. So I think there will be a, there will be a change, there will be a distance taken. But I don't foresee, at least in the near future, any radical changes. I don't think, you know, a new government, well, first of all, we don't know the powers of the presidents that will have to be decided in a constitution, and there'll have to be a vote for a president. But I can't foresee a situation where the peace treaty with Israel will be abrogated, for instance. I can see a situation where if there's an attack on Gaza, the borders would be open as opposed to keeping them closed as had happened under the Mubarak regime. Uh, so not a radical change, but definitely a gradual change. Rula Halaf, thank you very much indeed. Another part of the Middle East where there is growing international attention and pressure is Iran, with talk of the threat of war and also a rupture in Iranian diplomatic relations with Britain. With me now is our diplomatic editor, James Blitz. James, following this issue over the years, it does tend to wax and wane, alarm about whether Iran is going to end up in a conflict with the West. We do seem to be, however, in a new period of intense anxiety. What's behind that? Well, I think the anxiety is that uh, Iran is continuing with its program, put simply. And uh, we had a report recently from the International Atomic Energy Agency, which was uh, basically saying that there was growing evidence that uh, Iran had sought to weaponize its program. In other words, actually design a warhead which can launch a nuclear payload. And I think underlying that also is another factor as well, is that um, it has, as you know, a second enrichment site at Qom, which was revealed in 2009. And Iran is doing an awful lot of work there. It is very, very difficult to attack that site. It's building up a lot of these centrifuge machines that enrich uranium. And I think there's a lot of concern growing that they will actually start full enrichment there and at very high levels close to weapons grade. And if that happens, and it could happen at any moment, that is really going to escalate things. The Israeli government, of course, has always said, particularly the government led by Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister, that they will not tolerate the development of an Iranian bomb. There's been open debate in the Israeli media and indeed in the Knesset about the idea of attacking Iran. How serious do you think the Israelis are uh, in their consideration of an attack? Well, the Israelis have to balance two things. On the one hand, they do not want to see the existential threat from Iran developing to the point where they have a weapon. That is clearly the case. On the other hand, Iran has significant retaliatory capability. That is the problem. It has the ability to launch ballistic missiles at Israeli cities. It has proxies in Hezbollah and Hamas with significant capability, particularly Hezbollah, whose uh, rocket potential over the last three years has considerably grown. So they have to weigh all that into account, and they also have to weigh into account the enormous international opprobrium there would be if such an attack were carried out. Thus far, I don't think there is any clear resolution of the Israeli position, but it's not impossible that 2012 is going to be a year of 
which is of great significance. What are they hearing from the Americans? I mean, I was in Washington the other week, and I was talking to Americans who follow this issue, and they seemed relatively sanguine. They were saying, look, if the Israelis were about to attack, they wouldn't be debating this in public. They'd just do it in the way they did with Iraq, in the way they did with Syria and their facilities, that they, they see Israel as trying to sort of bounce America into doing an attack. But what's your reading of the, that delicate relationship between Israel and the States and the European Union, indeed? Well... I think the instinct in the US is not to attack. It is to allow the sanctions process to continue. And of course, there is a big beefing up of sanctions happening at the moment by the European Union, which for the first time is looking at oil sanctions and will approve oil sanctions next year. What it boils down to in the end is if the Israelis turn around one day and say, look, we have an existential threat, uh, phone Obama and say, are you with us or for us? Uh, the US administration has to take a decision. I and think the it- view in of many people in intelligence agencies and Western governments is the US would ultimately be there if Israel regarded there being an existential threat. But I don't think at the moment there is any clear advanced planning for an attack on behalf on, on the, by, by the United States. Finally, what do we know of the situation in Iran itself? Obviously very, very opaque, but the regime's reaction to the sanctions, the sacking of the British embassy and so on, and there's some, some suggestion of internal division within Iran about how to handle this. What, what's, what do you hear? I think at the moment Iran is... A bit like a caged animal, that's how I see it. It is losing an enormous amount of influence and power in the Middle East. It's losing Syria. It has not, it's, um, Hezbollah has not been supportive of Syria in recent times. There's the economic situation inside Iran is very, very fraught. There are divisions between Hamane and Ahmadinejad over which way to go. And I think that's the reason why you're seeing this period that we're going through at the moment, which is one of Iran almost seeming to lash out or factions within the regime lashing out the attempted assassination of the Saudi ambassador we saw a few weeks ago, or at least the plotting to do that, the sacking of the British embassy last week. We're going to see more and more, I think, of this very perturbed, um, unstable kind of behaviour by Iran. And that is why I think this story is now, after a period when it's really been quite quiet in 2011, the year of the Arab Spring, I think all the signs are it is now going to be one of the dominant issues in the Middle East in 2012, and one in which there will be some serious confrontation between the Iranians and Western powers. James Blitz, thank you very much indeed. And now on to Russia. Last week's parliamentary elections saw Vladimir Putin's United Russia Party see its majority significantly reduced. Earlier today, David Crouch, one of our Europe news editors, spoke to Charles Clover, who's our Moscow bureau chief, about what the elections and the recent protests mean for Vladimir Putin. Is this the beginning of the end of managed democracy in Russia? It really is very significant. You've seen Putin look very chastened on on national television. There have been been a lot of very conciliatory messages from the Kremlin about change, about renewing the United Russia Party. Putin's press secretary, Dmitry Peskov, even seemed to distance Putin from the United Russia Party in, in remarks yesterday saying that Putin's popularity is, is separate from the popularity of United Russia. So they don't know what they're they're facing and I think the, the opposition is also just sort of starting to feel its, its strength. I think the next big test will come on Saturday when there is a march planned on Revolutionary Square right outside in the afternoon and a Facebook page for the march and, and there are 13,000 people have accepted Facebook invitations to attend the march which is sort of a symbolizes the, the popularity of, of the movement. But that said, Russia has 50,000 very well-trained police and riot police and interior ministry troops stationed in Moscow who know what they're doing and who are very good at dealing with, with 
protesters who are not very well trained and not very very experienced in this kind of thing. Surely the protests so far have really been quite small. Even 13,000 people is not big by Russian standards. To what extent do those protests represent a broader sense of protest against the regime? You're seeing a lot of new people protesting. I mean, when I was out last night on Triumphalnaya Square in the center of the city, there was a, a protest. You know, the people who were protesting were largely young people, affluent people, and people who hadn't protested before, or at least who said they hadn't protested before. When you go to these protests, in the past, they're mostly sort of older people, Communist Party pensioners, Communist Party supporters, I would say, who tend to sort of show up at these things kind of like clockwork. So there's a new face on the on the protest movement. And I think the only thing that's missing is a, is a sort of a charismatic leader. The real proximate reason for the protest is not, you know, economic, or political malaise, it's the election, the rigged election on December 4th. Uh, what happened was the election was probably no more rigged than any other Russian election in the last decade under Putin. But what was different was that everybody had a camera phone and they recorded all this manipulation and ballot stuffing and multiple voting and falsifying of precinct protocols and things like that. And so it's all just sort of sitting there on the internet and everybody can tell that this was a complete farce. So it's never really been shoved in people's faces the way it has been in the last few days. These people are not particularly concerned about hits to their living standards over the past few years if they're younger and more affluent. Is it too crude to talk about democracy movement in Russia? No, I do think there is a democracy movement. I think that if there weren't any elections, I think that probably Russians, by and large, would get on with their lives. But what really seems to have caught the popular imagination is just the hypocrisy of having an election that's been just blatantly, utterly rigged, and the regime asks people to just forget about it and basically treat them like cattle. I think the other thing that fed popular discontent was what happened in September when Dmitry Medvedev and Vladimir Putin, the, the president and the prime minister respectively, just sort of got up in front of an audience of loyal party delegates and announced that they were switching jobs, and that was that, and presented Russia with a fait accompli. I think that that Actually, looking at public opinion polls since then, the regime's popularity has nosedived since late September. So I think people were very upset at being treated basically like cattle. What does your average Russian think about Vladimir Putin and think about the presidential elections coming up in March? I've, I've noticed a shift in the way average normal people that I interact with talk about Putin. I think when I got here three years ago, people would criticize Putin, but only if they knew who you were, and they wouldn't do it in front of strangers, and they wouldn't necessarily... And generally, people liked him. I mean, criticism of Putin was not something that was socially acceptable, except in very narrow kind of Moscow intellectual circles. And now it's everywhere. I mean, people just... You get in a taxi, and the taxi driver will say, you know, oh, damn... Putin traffic jam or something like that. So people are very open about criticizing Putin. I think a lot of that is due to the sense of the stagnating economy. A lot of it is also just due to the perception that, that corruption has grown. Bloggers like Alexei Navalny, who write openly about corruption and who expose corruption at state companies, that's really contributed to uh, the perception that the, the Putin regime is stagnating and corrupt. You know, it, it fails to inspire people the way it used to inspire. That was Charles Clover in Moscow. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Rula Khalaf in London, also to James Blitz and to Charles Clover in Moscow. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash 
podcasts.